Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Feminism, 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 feminism ruins everything. It's a feminist podcast. Hello and welcome to Feminism Ruins Everything. We are the feminist podcast where we give critiques to movies, musicals, and pop culture phenomena. And potentially ruin them potentially we would like to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on stolen ghana land we would like to pay our respects to all elders past present and emerging and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and this always was and always will be aboriginal land before we get stuck into the episode uh if you like our podcast and you're in adelaide at the end of october sa woo uh Consider coming to our live podcast. Please do. We're doing two shows on the 24th and the 30th of October at Star Theatres. Uh, we're we're going to be discussing Frozen on the first one. That'll be a kid-friendly episode if you want to come along and hear us discuss Disney. If you've got kids who are into Frozen and that you want to get into feminism, <laughs> let us be your gateway. <laughs> and uh, on the 30th, we will be discussing Friends. Yes. We have a lot to say I about... I have so much to say about Friends. Oh, I'm, I'm really gonna, excited. It's going to be really tough to restrict it into an hour's worth of content. Um, <laughs> if you would like to come along to our live recording sessions, please uh, check out the, the links in our episode description. Um, or if you follow us on Facebook, we've got some events up there. Um, and we're part of the Back to Back Festival, which is happening at the Star Theatres. So when you go to book tickets, you're going to be greeted with many, many, many uh, shows <laughs> like <laughs> listed in the same event. Mm-hmm. So just find the ones that say feminism ruins everything. But also check out what else is happening in the festival because there are lots of really great acts happening as well. Yeah, I, I think uh, tickets get cheaper the more shows you go to see, kind of back-to-back. Discount. Hence the name. Hello. Uh, and also, you know, it's been a tough year for theatre and for artists uh, in particular, so please uh, support and see as many shows as you can to really help them out. That'd be That'd cool. That'd be great. Speaking of supporting artists, oh. if you're listening to this episode the day it comes out, yeah. <laughs> you will still be able to go see our very own Millicent Sarr. On the proviso that you're in Adelaide, South Australia. <laughs> that does help. Yeah. Uh, tell us about Friend Fem. So this coming weekend, the 3rd and 4th of October 2020, if you are listening to this episode in retrospect, uh, I'm sorry, you've missed out, but I will be restaging my feminist cabaret. Um, it's on the, in the Adelaide CBD at a new queer hub called Diversity, and uh, it is... A really fun show. I'm really excited about it. We've had a couple of really successful seasons in the past. Um, so I would love you to come along. It's probably the last time that we're going to perform the show in Adelaide, at least for a considerable amount of time. Mm. Um, I've got my all-woman band playing with me, which is really sick. Um, the cool thing about the venue is that it's um, it, it's under a different name now and different management, but it is, it is the venue that we debuted the show in. So the first Ooh. time we ever staged it, it was here. So that's a bit nostalgic. But this time the whole band is there. Uh, I've got... 10 songs that are about toxic masculinity and consent and mansplaining and there's some sing-alongs and you might cry a little bit towards the end (laughs) like 
it's a good night out. I have fun. If you're listening to this before the 3rd of October, I'm really excited to come along and see this show. I've seen it uh, a few times in the past iterations. I've never seen it with the full band, so I'm super excited. If you're listening to this after the 3rd of October, oh my God, what an incredible show that was. (laughs) I had such a great time. I wept. I applauded. I had so much fun. You really missed that. Thank you for that really genuine reaction, Alex. <laughs> yeah. Today, I'm really excited. We're talking about one of my favorite musicals. Oh, I didn't know that. It's one of your favorites? Look, I just... Look, I never rank it with... <laughs> with when, I, when somebody's like, what are your favorite musicals? I'm like, oh, I never bring this one up. But anytime I encounter it, I'm just like, holy crap, this is awesome. It's really freaking good. We're talking about Chicago. Hell yeah. So Chicago was written, uh, was a play written by Maureen Dallas Watkins in 1926, which was then turned into a musical in 1975 with music and lyrics by Kander and Ebb, mm-hmm. uh, directed by Bob Fosse. And then it was turned into a film in 2002, directed by Rob Marshall. Hell yeah. So Chicago's been around. Chicago, the film is kind of touted as bringing back the the film musical it like died out oh, for yeah? a while and then we had Moulin Rouge and people were like musicals in film and then Chicago came out and won the Oscar for best picture that year and people were like musicals in film mm, and, and so it kind of it's gone downhill ever since yeah it's it's wild to me because whenever I have I approach movie musicals with so much trepidation when I hear that there's going to be a mu- a movie version of a musical I'm like Mm-hmm. Okay. I can't wait to see some mainstream actors, uh, you know, muddle their way through this score. Uh, I can't wait to see some poor directorial choices and some of the best songs being cut. Um, that's how I approach movie musicals. So the fact that Chicago, starring Catherine Zeta-Jones and Renee Zellweger, is freaking phenomenal. It's such a good film. I'm like... It's so good. This is the exception to the rule in my house. And Sound of Music. But, like, that's a different era. (laughs) I'm coming to this show from a slightly different angle. Um, Having just recently vocally directed a a high school production of it. Slightly different. A few things censored. A few things taken (laughs) out. Some really iconic line changes. For example, in the bit in Cell Block Tango where... Single my ass. Yeah, that I think it's the char- I think the character's called Annie. Um, she says, "Oh, he single." He told me, "Single my ass." But in the high school version, it's "Single my foot," <laughs> which is just like endlessly funny. Um, but like the bones of it are still there. Yeah, and uh, saw it on Broadway in twenty end of twenty sixteen. I reckon. Nice, nice. And uh, enjoyed it kind of felt like it had been running for a really long time and everyone was just a bit sick of it. Which, which it had which, by that point, which, definitely. Yeah. yeah. So, like, I got it. <laughs> but even still, I was like, damn, Chicago's good. Whereas I have only seen the movie uh, and I saw the high school production that you vocally <laughs> directed. Uh, which Thank you for coming. I still think it's, it's an odd choice uh, from a content perspective for high schoolers to do because it's all about sex and murder hmm. and, and everything like that. But it's an incredible choice because the ratio of, <laughs> of men yes. to women mm-hmm. uh, in, in high school especially, Chicago's one of the few shows that ac- 
accurately reflects that. Yes. Like it's, like, it's, it's not like you've gone, ah, we're putting on the producers and we need <laughs> 17 men and one woman. Indeed. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, so the, the ratio, there are literally, t- oh, there are literally three named characters in Chicago that are men and mm-hmm. everyone else is a woman. I, yeah. I reckon maybe like 10 plus other lead roles are women. Um, Although there is one character who in professional productions is sometimes a man in drag, which we will mm-hmm. get to later. Um, but in this production that I recently vocally directed, which I adored, I had the best time. <laughs> the kids were great. The score is awesome. Uh, but in our cast of like 40 strong kids, mm-hmm. five of them were boys. Mm-hmm. So- <laughs> and so all but two of them had like named roles <laughs> and like a lot to do. And they were they were great. They were really they good. Well. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, really, really reflects the um, really reflects the demographics of high school students gender wise that want to perform in the mm-hmm. high school musical. Exactly, and I think that is one of the most noticeable things about Chicago as a musical. So many women. So many women. Like there are so, everywhere. <laughs> there are so many shows that's just like an abundance of men with a couple of women thrown in as supporting characters. And this one, the men definitely take like a back, if not side seat, to the women who are front and centre. And I think that's awesome. Mm. Women everywhere. So Everywhere you look. I mean, a lot of them, actually all of them, bad people, mm-hmm. uh, but they're there. <laughs> but they're all multifaceted. They're all three-dimensional. They all have very strong wants and intentions and desires, and they're very uh, ruthless in Ooh, getting what they want. And I think... I don't think that there is anything inherently "quote unquote" feminist about the plot no. of Chicago, no. but I think it is a representation of what feminists want from art, yeah. which is just a reflection of women who are three-dimensional and multifaceted and. Some women aren't good people, but we have films all the time about men and how bad people they are, like Goodfellas and, and The Godfather. They're the films that kind of came to mind while I was re-watching it this week, because I'm like, these are just multifaceted bad people doing bad things, and you kind of root for them. Mm. And isn't that one of the things that feminism wants, is that kind of equality and parody of like being able to portray women as flawed and with ill intentions and that be kind of like celebrated in an, in, in an entertaining way. I've forgotten how to word yeah. right now. I mean, I don't think that it's it's celebrated, but it's, it's just there. It's just there. It's, um, you know, an accepted thing mm-hmm. that these people are, are multidimensional and... It was it was really interesting when I was doing um, vocal work with the leads on this show that I just did, um, the, this high school version of Chicago, <laughs> where uh, I would sit down with them to kind of work out what vocal quality they wanted out of their character. To be like, tell me about your character. Like, what what are they motivated by? Um, what are their wants and desires? And almost everyone was like, they are greedy. They are selfish. They are motivated by money and fame mm-hmm. and infamy. And um, they just want to be in the spotlight. Like, it's it's an entirely narcissistic, <laughs> selfish trajectory, but it's theirs. Yeah. <laughs> and the cool thing about this is that um, I know that we advocate on this podcast a lot for um, three-dimensional, like, multifaceted women characters written by women. Mm-hmm. And I do think that that is something that you 
inevitably get when you have female writers working on any work. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also cool that in the 70s, Candor and Ebb, both of whom are men, were writing for so many very well-fleshed-out female characters. Mm. Like, testament to the fact that you don't have to be a woman writer to write good female characters. Male writers, listen up. I think Thank it, you. I think it does help that the uh, text that Chicago is based on was written mm. by a woman, so they had that as a basis, but they still carried that through in their adaptation of it. So, yeah, like, men, it's not an excuse. <laughs> <laughs> you have no excuse to not write good female characters. Damn straight. Something that I do find interesting about these characters is the fact that while they absolutely are strong female leads, especially Roxy and Velma, Mm. for anyone that's not familiar with the plot of the show, essentially what happens is uh, Roxy uh, is having an affair with a man named Fred Caisley. She shoots him when he's walking out on her, and so she tries to get her husband to take the blame for it, but then... Um, he kind of accidentally lets slip that he hasn't seen the dead body and he's surprised by who it is and so she's incriminated and goes to jail. Mm. And then in order to get off, she needs to engage a lawyer, a famous high-profile lawyer whose name's Billy Flynn, mm-hmm. uh, to, to get her off. And he is already re- representing the very famous Velma Kelly, um, who, who allegedly killed her sister and, and brother-in-law. Husband. Oh, and husband, sorry, yeah. and husband. Uh, because they were having an, an affair. affair. <laughs> Number 17. The, the spread eagle. Uh, and so he's representing her, and she's already a big vaudeville star, and Roxy wants to be a vaudeville star, so kind of idolizes Velma. Um, and then when Roxy's case heats up, Billy Flynn kind of puts less emphasis on Velma and gives all the attention to Roxy. So she's getting all this press and she's getting all this fame and she's living her best life. Mm. And then another woman commits a murder. And so he goes on to represent her and both Velma and Roxy are kind of, um, left in the lurch a little bit. Um, and then they have to like keep fighting to be the most noteworthy. Like Roxy fakes a pregnancy. Uh, like Velma is coming up with all these like really outlandish things that she's going to do on the witness stand. Like they're all kind of trying to compete for his affection and for the attention of the media Mm. um, so that they can just kind of stay relevant. And because it's interesting. We were talking before we started recording about how uh, everyone, like the public in this show is represented to uh, be like really murder obsessed. Like it's entertainment mm. um, seeing all of these women shoot their husbands. Um, but we were like, what's changed? It's now that we just don't read about it in the newspaper. We just listen to true crime podcasts. <laughs> like it's, yeah. <laughs> we are still fascinated with crime. I think the point of the show is about the sensationalism of the media and how a lot of people have this idea that it doesn't matter how I'm famous, as long as I'm famous, Mm. that's what matters. And the fact that the press views this as an opportunity to sell papers and get attention without really caring about the fact that a guy has died. People have been killed but that doesn't matter because the story and the celebrity surrounding the killers and also the celebrity surrounding the, the high-profile lawyers mm. uh, 
like you look at things like the, the O.J. Simpson case, yeah, which was like hugely sensationalized uh, here in Australia, like the Chappelle Corby trials. Uh, like people are obsessed with these things, and nothing's really changed since yeah. the twenties. We still love crime. Love We're it. still so fascinated by it. So, with with the plot in mind, um, I think it's really interesting when you look at both Roxy and Velma's trajectories, mm. kind of seeing how um, how ruthless they are going to be, um, and what to what ends they're going to go to to um, to reach their their goal of this this fame and celebrity and success mm. in their eyes. Um, so, like I mentioned, uh, Roxy like fakes her own pregnancy to to stay relevant to the press mm-hmm. and to like speed up her trial because they're like oh well you can't have a baby born in jail so let's let's get, get you your trial happening and um and i think that to on one hand i think that these women have a lot of autonomy and they are very clear about what they want and kind of are going to go to all extremes to get it Mm. um and and roxy also is like very manipulative of her husband and gets um the major players on side like gets um mama morton who is the um the warden the warden of the jail jail on side um and like gets this hotshot lawyer so to some degree kind of will stop at no end to not only i mean her, her freedom is not that important to her it's the fact that she wants to like be a celebrity and dancer and whatnot. Hmm. Um, and a, a sim- like it's not quite as extreme, but Velma's trajectory is similar in that she um, wants to get the high-profile nature of her case to kind of help her... Um, to help advance her performance career. Hmm. So to some degree, I think that both women are like, taking matters into their own hands and going, here's what I want... Here's what I have to do to make it happen, which feels very female empowerment-esque. But then on the other hand, my brain goes, but the way that they're doing that is by being entirely reliant on this big hotshot lawyer who is a man. Yeah. And that undermines it somewhat to me. But I wonder if that's just like a reflection of the times that that's kind of how things were and that, you know, I, I, all the people on the jury were men, that all the judges were men, all the lawyers were men. That's kind of... I mean, that's not really changed. Mm. Other than, like... Yeah, I'm saying... <laughs> yeah, like you try... <laughs> I mean... The, the point doesn't really hold traction when you take into account reality. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> The legal profession, at least in Australia, is getting a lot more gender parity. Mm. And juries are now... um, People of any gender can be on a jury. Whether or not they get vetoed is another story. Mm. Um, So you won't always have like a 6-6 split. But the judiciary are still overwhelmingly men. Yeah. Which also needs to change. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. It absolutely does. Although in Australia, in our highest court, which is called the High Court, appropriately named, our Chief Justice is a woman. That's Susan Kiefel. That's a good start. Yes. That's a really good start, but more things need to change. Yeah, but also still so much sexism and 
sexual assault that happens in the legal profession. Oh, that really, no. Like, no, thank you. it's just kind of, the legal profession in Australia has just kind of very recently had its its iteration of Me Too when all these allegations have come out about certain high court judges. And wow. ah, it's just everywhere, folks. A lot of things need to change. Lots yes. of things. Sorry, we got really sidetracked. <laughs> um, but you were saying that women needed kind of because of the power structures that were in place in the 20s, which still are in place. Mm-hmm. Women were kind of reliant on that. I, I'm not sure I think it undermines their characters because I feel that Velma and Roxy do literally everything they can to manipulate the system yeah. against itself. Yeah. So something that we were talking about before we hit record was the fact that um, I think that in the the kind of patriarchal, sexist society that was the 20s, again... Slash is the present. <laughs> again, what's changed. Um, in this society where there was a very clear idea of, um, you know, moral values and traditional femininity um, that, to some degree, I think Roxy and Velma really... Um, weaponize that and weaponize mm-hmm. their femininity um, to the point that, yeah, they're kind of working within the system to cheat it. To the point that they both literally get away with murder. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, um, you like, know, how much more do you weaponize your femininity than to pretend that you're pregnant? Yeah. Um, and also the fact that, you know, when when Roxy's on the witness stand... Um, Billy Flynn is getting her to like, you know, knit and wear this lovely um, conservative but, but beautiful outfit and, uh, you know, weep on the stand. Like, mm. And Velma's got this whole routine about how she's going to like, um, you know, be hyper emotional and like and weak and she's going to faint and she's going to be all over the place and that's how she's going to get the jury's um, sympathy. Yeah. So they're both like overly playing up this hyper-feminine version of themselves to try and adhere to the societal expectation of women to the point that in doing so, they entirely cheat the system (laughs) and they get away with murder. There's a moment where Roxy's on the stand and Billy's questioning her and Roxy says something like, all I want to do is stay at home and be a housewife and iron his socks. (laughs) And it's like the exact opposite of everything she's displayed up until that point. And she's just so playing into this idea of what society thought a woman should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, that she's exploiting it. She's exploiting it. And I think I think that's really cool. Like, to see these women who have obviously acknowledged how they are perceived within society, particularly in a hyper-sexualized way, and utilizing that for their own gain to the expense of people who would underestimate them because of it Mm. like the amount of times that Roxy in particular uses her sexuality or even sex to get something from a man like the the only reason that people believe that she's pregnant is that she seduces the doctor Mm. and and also like wasn't she sleeping with Fred Casey because he was like oh I can like introduce you to some people and like help you get famous kid yeah yeah and the reason she kills him isn't so much that he's like I'm not going to have this affair with you anymore it's that oh, I lied and I'm not a producer and I can't get you famous and she's like you dick 
And I she kills him. I think that's exclusively in the movie. Because oh, in the really? musical, it's because he's leaving her. Oh, okay. No, it's, yeah, it's, but I, I like that angle in the movie better. It's a really good angle. Yeah. Like. <laughs> so I suppose on one hand, what we're seeing here is these women um, playing into this patriarchal society so that they can exploit it. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I do think that if you are at a disadvantage you know, on the basis of your sex or um, for any other reason, to then play into that is a way of regaining your power. Mm-hmm. At the same time, what I would love for us to be aiming towards as a society is that we get to the point where women can just be their authentic selves and that is their power. Yeah. yeah. But in the meantime, exploit the patriarchy. <laughs> like before we smash it, Let's exploit it. Or we, we smash it from the inside by yeah. exploiting it. What it kind of reminds me of is the fact that there's been a discussion about OnlyFans recently mm-hmm. and the fact that, um, I don't know, certain men object to it. Um, to be perfectly honest, it's not a platform that I am overly familiar with, but my understanding is that it's a platform where women can sell their like online sexual materials Mm-hmm. to some like whatever they may be and um there's been a lot of discussion and uh discourse and analysis of the response to it and the fact that there are like a lot of men up in arms like how dare these women charge us for their nudes um <laughs> and about the fact that you know you'd, you'd very happily access like you know, be it pornographic or explicit material mm. of women, if it were free. But the fact, because in in those circumstances, it's in the hands of, like, the power is in the hands of the person accessing it. But the moment that that woman takes back her power and goes, actually, you're going to pay for it, mm-hmm. and, like, exploits and capitalizes on the male gaze in that scenario, that's when the men get angry. Like, I feel like that's the modern example (laughs) of women exploiting (laughs) the system for their own gain. Like, freaking do it. I I think it's exactly the case. Like, men are kind of like, I would like to hypersexualize you, but I don't want you to profit off of it in any way. Yeah. And as soon as women start profiting off of their own exploitation... uh, That's why people get up in arms about it. Yeah. But I think I think it's the same thing with Chicago. That's what Roxy and Velma are doing there, utilizing and weaponizing their femininity, and exploiting those who underestimate them because of it. Mm. Which is like all power to you. Yeah. So like until we have a society where true gender equity actually exists, which to be perfectly frank and pessimistic, I don't think is likely to happen in my lifetime, which is sad. But until that happens. Cheat the system. Do it. Absolutely. So the conclusion of Velma and Roxy's trajectories at the end of the show slash movie is that we see them in their very own um, kind of double act. They're able to capitalize on each other's press with their murder cases and by teaming up together they are able to sell out the chicago theater Mm. Uh, but at the end of the movie i guess it's different in stage productions but they they become a successful double act yeah so basically um hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What happens in the musical, which I think is reflected in the movie, is that just as Roxy is being found not guilty and she's like ready to capitalize off of all the press and the success of, you know, the end of her trial and her not guilty verdict. Mm -hmm. Um, another murder happens like in the courtroom and everyone goes nuts and there's this woman who like shoots up the the courtroom that she's in and um, the the press are only interested in that and so Roxy is free and she's found not guilty but she doesn't get any of the the press because they've already moved on Mm -hmm. because success (laughs) from Murder is fleeting, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> and it's shown in the movie, like, she's auditioning for places, trying to get a show started, and, and the people she's auditioning for are like, Did she, didn't she kill her husband or something? Uh, I don't know, she's not that good. And they leave. Mm. And it's not until Velma approaches her and says, hey, we kind of need each other, mm. because I'm not getting any success either, but together we'd have enough of a draw card to actually do something. Yeah. And so in a really backwards and warped way, I get a real, like, girl support girls <laughs> at the end of this. It's like, oh, I'm so sad that, you know, the murder that I committed um, didn't help, you know, kickstart my career. Sorry that it kind of stunted yours and that we're both a little bit irrelevant. But if two murderers come together, <laughs> uh, we've got each other's back. There's we a... support one another. We're, we're more powerful together. There's a beautiful line in the film where Roxy's just like, like Velma's approached and said, we should do this together. And Velma's like, yeah, but I hate you. And Velma's like, well, there's one industry in the world where that doesn't matter. Cut to them (laughs) on stage performing to a sold out audience. It's this really weird kind of perverted. I think it ties back to them cheating the system. They've spent their whole time cheating the system as individuals and they've kind of realized the best way for us to both get what we want is to cheat the system just a little bit more. And even though we don't really like each other, we kind of need each other Mm. in this moment. And let's do it and just make bank. Yeah. And and they do. And I think... (laughs) And the the cool thing is, in the... In the musical, you don't see that interaction. It's all subtextual. Mm. Um, Basically, it just cuts from Roxy being devastated that you know, the press didn't want to take her picture and then it goes straight into um, the duet that they're singing together. Mm-hmm. Like, she has this, like, idea and she's like, oh, great. And then they go and, and do their, their double act together. I, I really like the scene in the movie. I think it's actually really important mm. uh, because I don't think it's a terribly clear in the musical version mm. exactly what's gone down. And I like the fact that they... If, to me, it feels important that they establish that it's not, oh, we became friends and yeah. we made up or anything. It's like a... This is a business this, arrangement. This is a business arrangement. This is mutually <laughs> beneficial. I'm going to grip my teeth and work with you. That's yeah. how I feel about this podcast, Ellis. <laughs> <laughs> and I can see the disdain in your eyes as we're talking over the microphone. You're just like, ugh. This guy. Just kidding. I love you. <laughs> love you too. 
something that I kind of alluded to earlier that I I don't actually have an opinion on, but I'm hoping that when I flesh it out verbally, I might get one, <laughs> mm-hmm. is the fact that usually in, at least in professional productions of Chicago, um, the role of Mary Sunshine, who is the most prominent reporter who yeah. um, uh, who's the journalist working on Roxy's case, um, is usually played by a man in drag. And I, I'd be curious to know why that decision was made in the first place, like who whose call that was to be like, you know what we could do? <laughs> um, it feels really needlessly gimmicky. I don't think it serves anything in the the story mm. like because it's not it's not a plot point that Mary Sunshine is outed or anything like that you you've mentioned that it's just kind of like the performer takes off their wig in the curtain call yeah. and it's like I've been a man all, all along and I'm like if it served something in the story yeah I'd understand but I'm it's, it's just kind of baffling like I know in the movie version Mary Sunshine is p- portrayed by a woman um mm-hmm. so they just cut that and you'll be surprised yeah. to learn that in the high school version that I just vocally directed, Mary Sunshine was also played by a, uh, a female student, whom I adore. Hi, Kate, if you're listening, you're awesome. Um, but the only other kind of comparable example that I can think of, of like drag of a character who's not a drag queen, because obviously, mm. you know, there are heaps of drag queens and like kinky boots, etc. Yeah. But... Um, like a character being a drag is Matilda, Trunchbull um, where Trunchbull is played by um, a man in drag. Um, but I, I think that part of the impetus behind that is that she, the character, is meant to be very physically domineering and really threatening. So by getting a really tall, broad man in drag to play this character, like she's huge and terrifying, particularly compared to the the students. Yeah. There's, there's also uh, Edna Turnblad in oh, Hairspray, yeah. but I feel like that is a bit played for laughs. Yeah. Like, I mean, Edna is a character. Hairspray as a thing is just... We've alluded so many times to <laughs> the fact that we're going to do, this, do an episode we? on Hairspray, and every time we're like, oh, we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> we got, we just got to prepare. Yeah. So I don't, I don't quite understand that casting choice to be honest um and like it's very it's very impressive because the vocal demands for mary sunshine are for like quite a high legit soprano Mm. um like it's it's vocally impressive when a man can sing something this this high and legit Mm -hmm. um and with that quality (sighs) but i think that it it feels like a bit it feels disrespect the the portrayal of this character by a man feels disrespectful to women because i feel like you're right it's 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 gimmicky it's played up and it's always an over the top stereotype of a like a an overly emotional quite hysterical mm. um easily manipulated woman and i'm kind of like i i think that that Portrayal and those characteristics in a character have a lot more of a sting to them when it's a man portraying them. Yeah. 
so it's not my favorite. But it, it also kind of like goes. It's counterintuitive to everything else in the the musical, where you have all these like really strong, complex non stereotypes mm. of women, and then you have Mary Sunshine, who's a man in drag, playing it all up. Yeah, it's a bit odd. Doesn't yeah. Doesn't doesn't really compute. I would love to know amongst our listenership if anyone has any like a different perspective about this because I suppose there could be different angles and perspectives and like also dependent on the actor who's playing the role. Mm. Um, I'm I'm interested to hear if anyone else has like seen the show, seen that character played as a man in drag and how they immediately responded to it. But, yeah, please let us know. Um, yeah, it's curious to me. I I would be really intrigued. If anyone you know is in touch with like Bob Fosse, for example, um, I think he's beyond, dead. Beyond the grave, I think he's dead. If John <laughs> Edwards is listening, <laughs> with yeah. with all due respect to Bob Fosse, um, may he rest in peace. Uh, if anyone has insight into why that casting choice happened originally, I would be so curious to know. Like, was was one of the male ensemble just like singing "Understandable, Understandable" backstage, and someone's like, "That's genius." Yes. That's get, what this, we need. get this man a wig and a pair of corsets. <laughs> <laughs> One casting choice that I really, really love in the film is Queen Latifah as Matron Mama Morton. Hell yes! Because not only is Queen Latifah just amazing in general, but I like that it, it kind of goes against uh, quote-unquote historical accuracy because there's no way that a woman of colour in the 1920s America would have had been in a position of power uh, in and, and influence and influence in that system. And I think just by kind of going, you know what, we don't really care about historical accuracy. We want Queen Latifah in the film. she's going to sing the shit out of it <laughs> and be incredible and she is she is correct yeah and and so I, like i i just l- like that that's the case and i know that uh in recent years the the broadway production as well has been a bit colorblind casting there was a mm. moment uh, there was an article from 2017 that you were reading where both the leads of chicago were women of color mm. So the the headline is Brandy Norwood and Lana Gordon make Broadway history as Chicago the musical's first black co-leads. Which, so, sick. Which is great. I'm I'm really glad that this the casting conventions surrounding this musical don't adhere to historical accuracy because I just don't care. Mm. I <laughs> in I a shocking <laughs> turn of events, Mim and Ellis of feminism ruins everything. Don't advocate for historical accuracy in movies and musicals. Yeah. Shock horror. <laughs> Everybody drink. Uh, <laughs> have we got a drinking game yet? Or is it, no, no, it's just the bingo. If, well, a new bingo coming soon, folks. And it will absolutely have Mim and Ellis denounce casting choices on the basis of historical <laughs> accuracy. Yes. Uh, also in the movie, uh, Lucy Liu has a cameo as Kitty, uh, an heiress who is is a sensationalized murder that almost takes all of Roxy's um, attention. Uh, I, I don't believe that an heiress in that time in America would be Asian American. Yeah. Uh, so I, I just think it, it, to me it feels like they cast the right people mm. for the role, yeah. uh, and I'm like that. That's what I want to see. Um, it it is telling that in the film our three major players, Roxy, Velma, and Billy Flynn, are all Caucasian. Yeah. Uh, but 
you know, it's good to see that they have spat in the face of historical accuracy mm. uh, in terms of casting. I just yeah. really want to put that out there. Side note, I love Richard Gere. <gasps> Speaking of white people who play lead roles in this in this movie, I, like, oh my god, I love Richard Gere. I I love Richard Gere, and also I love Billy Flynn. <laughs> like, uh, Billy Flynn is one of those uh, roles that, to me, is a dream role, but always kind of sneaks up on me. Like, anytime a song from Chicago with Billy Flynn and it comes on, I'll be like, oh, I need to play this. I need to play this role. Because he's so much fun. He's so charismatic. He's so unabashedly corrupt. Oh, absolutely. He's just like, the, 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 my favorite line is like, if Jesus was alive today and he had $5,000, things would have turned out differently. Like, <laughs> it's incredible. Oh. Yeah, and then at the end, when Roxy's really upset that the press didn't care about her, um, and he's like, I, you literally are a free woman. You're not going to hang for this murder. You 100% committed. Like, you're freaking welcome. And she's really rude. He's like, eh, I only did it for the money anyway. <laughs> and then just and all that jazz off. <laughs> One thing that I really like about this is that Billy Flynn isn't a romantic lead. I do like that, yeah. And the fact that the musical doesn't feel the need to impose a romance subplot which i think would really detract from everything mm-hmm. uh is to the benefit of the show it yeah. means that you don't have none of the main players wants or desires surround romance it's all yeah. personal goals and i think that's really cool and i wish that more musicals adhered to that because a lot of musicals feel the need to have a romance subplot just kind of shoved in for no real reason. And or I, several, for that matter. Or several. Have you seen Anything Goes? Uh, <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm really glad that they don't have Velma and Billy get together at the end or something like yeah. that. It would be really kind of weird and disingenuous. Yeah. I mean, he's still a sleazy old man. Oh, he is. I want to play him so much. <laughs> uh, what else do you like about this musical? Uh. The score is so good. The songs. the songs in this show are so good. <laughs> it like it opens with all that jazz. And if any other score opened with a song that good, you'd be left wondering, oh, is th- that was it. We kind of opened too early. But oh, it keeps the momentum keeps going. Early. Yeah. Like just every song is a freaking winner. Mm. Um, Silver Tango, is there, is there any song in the musical theatre canon more iconic than the Cell Block Tango? Like, I, feel, I swear, like, any theatre kid would hear those castanets at the start and be like, I'm in. I'm ready. I, I know this entire number. Like, hello. Like, I know it's, it's supposed to, like, convey this idea of, like, prison is a scary place and the people in it are, like, horrible murderous people but don't give them the coolest song possible <laughs> no please I... do because i'm so grateful that this song exists because it's yeah. awesome i'm so on board with them i'm like yeah they did have it coming <laughs> um yes and is there anything more feminist than a group of six women justifying why they killed their husbands <laughs> i'm just kidding i don't advocate you're, for violence you're just kidding only five of them did it. <laughs> well, Velma blacked out completely. Actually, no, no, no. no the, the Hungarian. The Hungarian. Velma totally oh. did it. I learnt, albeit from Wikipedia, so, you know, I should probably fact check myself a little bit further, but uh, I learnt today that Hunyak, which is the 
like Hungarian. written as the last name for the Hungarian character is a racial slur for Hungarian people. Oh. I did not know that. I did not know that either. Yeah. That puts an extra layer on to how ignored she was yeah. by the justice system. Also, can we talk about how she actually probably is the only one who's innocent and she's the one that gets hanged because she's foreign. Yeah. Xenophobia is alive and well in 1920. Yeah, I think that probably was a given. But and a hundred years later, here we are, 2020, and the U.S. justice system is still racist as fuck. And all the jazz. Fuck. I think this musical critiques the American justice system mm. really strongly, and the direct comparison between it and show business and sensationalism. I think it all ties it together so well it's such it's a really good script and a really clever bit of writing i'm not sure that the that the critiques of how it was corrupt in 1920 well it wasn't set in 1920 in the 20s um are as relevant today i think it it is unjust and corrupt for different reasons but more for systemic racism reasons I mean but but even still I I suppose you can draw the parallel from a hundred years ago and today that if you have enough money to get yourself a hotshot lawyer you can Mm -hmm. get out of just about anything yeah and that's oh I mean that's true in Australia as well like that judicial system is messed up in that regard yeah that like let's get some law reform happening there hey and that kind of this is the episode where I flex my lawyer skills, isn't it? It is. <laughs> I hate myself. <laughs> I've read somewhere that some people think that the end of the film specifically is another fantasy uh, sequence and that it doesn't actually happen. I don't like that interpretation of it because I really like the idea that you get to the end of this musical and you see how corrupt the characters are and then you see how successful they become because of their corruption. Mm. That just kind of highlights this idea that, well... Corruption happens and is actually kind of a successful way to go. Looking at you, President of the United States. Mm. Mm. Nothing corrupt there. Absolutely not. All no. taxes paid. One thing that I want to point out is, like, just because of my of my taste, I'm not usually, like, a huge dance show person. Mm. Yeah, like, but like I, we both said that in our Cats episode. That's correct. Also, go listen um, to our Cats episode. It's funny. Real fun. Uh, but I really like that there were two really big dance moments in this show that are also really characterful. Like the fact that the end number is mostly a big dance number, I think is just really cool mm. and a really cool way of like bringing our two heroines who have been butting heads the entire time, bringing yeah. them together and in sync is really cool. And then, oh, when they get the guns and they shoot the shoot everything it's ah it's really Mm. i love this film and also the line where they say like you know we're a representation of america and what america stands for and it's like (laughs) oh that line has just gotten better and better and more relevant hasn't it yeah it's beautiful yeah actually one thing that i want to talk about before we we wrap things up amos is such a wonderful character he he's the only person in the sh- entire show with a moral compass. Literally, and the only the only character uh, with any redeeming qualities. And it's such an understated and beautiful role. Yeah, like I feel like it's easy to to just kind of wash over 
Amos, but a really good performer will really take hold tug of, at your heartstrings. of that and really tug yeah. at it. John C. Riley in the film does a great job, mm. wonderful job. Yeah. The fact that in the musical he asks for his exit music and doesn't get any. <laughs> oh, most iconic moment of it's the incredible. show. It's incredible. The show is so funny. It's a really funny show. Like, like okay, all right. Just not even from a feminist perspective, just from an this show is objectively good perspective. <laughs> um, Bangin' score. Mm-hmm. Like, 90% of the songs are winners. Costumes, sick. 20s outfits, like, best era for fashion. Oh, my God, <laughs> I'm going to say it. Um, hilarious. Script, hilarious. Mm. Um, all the characters, completely morally corrupt. You don't care. They're so entertaining. You want them to succeed. Mm. And, like, two strong female leads. Yeah. Ah. It's so good. And also, like... Talking specifically about the film, which did win Best Picture the year it came out, um, really well made. Mm. As, and especially as far as like musical films go, like the the Roxy number, where she's like wandering through the darkness, and every now and again, like a mirror will appear in front of her. The staging and camera work in that is wonderful. And something that I think that the film has such an advantage of is the fact that it can take the the vaudevillian. Num- vaudevillian is that an adjective yeah the vaudevillian numbers and um kind of put them in a dream sequence so that you could see oh this is a dream sequence but now we're coming back to real life like that that stark yeah. contrast is so nice in the film and it's just something that isn't quite as possible in a stage musical setting mm-hmm. and i i really love it for that it's it's so it tell that tells us a lot about roxy as well, and it also kind of facilitated some of the the songs that didn't make it from stage to screen because they're like, there's no way we can justify Roxy imagining this, so mm. we're gonna have to cut it. And I kind of think that works for the benefit. I think all the stuff from the stage show is like still really good, mm. but I think by trimming down the story and adding in a couple of other clarifying bits really helps sharpen the story of Chicago. Mm. Mim. Does Chicago, with its two female leads... And and several other supporting (laughs) female characters... Does it pass the Bechdel test? 100%. 100%. Absolutely. Like, first couple (laughs) of scenes, like, Velma and Mama are talking about her tour. Mm -hmm. Um, Velma and Roxy are, like, talking about their cases... I just can't do it alone. Just can't do it alone. Um, the song, which isn't in the movie but is in the musical, My Own Best Friend, is yeah. literally Velma and Roxy singing about how they only they have each other. Only have, well, well, no, they, they only, only have, have themselves. themselves and how they're going to succeed regardless. Mm-hmm. Um, just lots of women talking to women about things that aren't men. I mean, lots of women talking to women about things that are men, specifically men that they killed. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. And also a lot of like, how do you get Billy Flynn? But, yeah, 100%, like, definitely passes the Bechdel test. And are we going to write or ruin Chicago? It's really interesting to me, because like you said from the outset, the, the, the concept for this show at no point tries to be feminist. At no point is it like, here's a feminist story that we're going to tell. Here's a story about, like, the advancement of women in society. Mm. But at the same time, it's told through the lens of so many strong female characters who have a lot of autonomy and determination and forge their own paths. Um, it's just women left, right, and center. Um, I, I kind of write it. 
Uh, it's really wild. <laughs> I 100% rate it. I think it's it's an example of feminist progress in action, mm. I think. Because it's more about the representation than the themes that are being explored. Yeah. Because at the end of the... I might cut this and I may be wrong. Please correct me if I am. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, feminists and people who are activists don't want to be fighting. And the less fighting and the more normalization of these ideas that occur, the more progress has been made. Yeah, like like feminism will have been completed in inverted <laughs> commas. Like, like true gender parity will be achieved when we no longer need to talk about feminism yeah. because gender parity just exists. Mm-hmm. And I think from that perspective, Chicago succeeds in almost every retrospect. Mm. And I And I do really like the idea of women cheating the system that tries yeah. to hold them down. And underestimates them because of their gender. That's pretty fun. It's really cool. Yeah. Ellis, if our listener friends want to get in touch, want to give us their two cents worth about the feminist merits of Chicago, the movie and or musical, how can they do that? Well, first they can run into my knife ten times. (laughs) Then they can get in touch with us through Facebook. We are Feminism Ruins Everything dash It's a Feminist Podcast. Or we're on Instagram yeah, at Feminism Ruins Everything Pod. Or if you like our work and would like to support us financially, please check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Feminism Ruins Everything Pod. You get some like behind the scenes stuff, some early concept art. Uh, you, you know, just like we just really appreciate all our all of our patrons. So thank you very much for those who have supported us. Thank you very much for people who uh, support us in the future. Thank you very much to everybody for listening. Yeah, you support yeah. us by listening. Exactly. Also, you support us by subscribing on whatever platform you are listening from. Uh, you support us by you know screenshotting your phone and like putting it on your Insta feed. Thanks, Nikki <laughs> Long, for doing that today. Love you. Um, yeah, just yeah. Tell your friends if they are into musicals and or movies and or pop culture phenomena and or like feminism. Or even if they don't. Even if they don't. Almost especially if they don't. Yeah. Because we want to we convert them to the cause. One of us. <laughs> One of us. Um, also, go watch Chicago. Oh. The movie's great. And go listen to the soundtrack. But just brace yourself if you're going to listen to the 90s revival album you're going to encounter a lot of vocal damage. <laughs> and if you, like me, feel your own larynx kind of shrivel up when you hear someone <laughs> shredding their vocal folds, just prepare yourself for that. Not looking at anyone in particular, B.B. Newworth. On that happy note, <laughs> take care, friends. Thank you. Don't kill your husbands. Bye. Unless they pop that gum one more time. <laughs>